Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. So we're in Peter K. Uh, Peter K. That is, we are in the book of Exodus. Uh, this Exodus chapter thirty-eight, and it goes from Exodus thirty-eight through chapter. Actually, the end of the book, chapter forty. Hazak, Hazak, finish Hazak. Be strong, be strong, and may you be strengthened. Uh, before we go into my spiel about this, which we'll be spending, to be fair, a, a large bit of our time, rather in the book of Luke today regarding this idea of, of giving an account of your actions and what you do uh, regarding how that's dealt with and how God sees that and how Messiah points that out to us. Before we go into that today, are there any questions or comments regarding this Torah portion? Things you said, hey, what's that about? What's that about? Okay, so Pamela, I see you have your hand raised. You go ahead and uh, uh, unmute yourself so we can hear you, Pamela. Hey, I'm here. Um, in my uh, Bible, it, it, it interchanges words that makes me think, uh, is one of them the um, tabernacle, the whole, the whole um, place to meet, or is the inner courtyard called the dwelling place? Because sometimes they call it the place of a tent of appointment, and sometimes they call it the dwelling place. Right. So it, it's a bit confusing with that throughout our Torah. So time, as as as, as Moses and and goes through this cycle, uh, the the titles of places change. So there's just we have to be aware of that. That's what happens. So. Prior to the tabernacle being built, the Mishkan, which is called Mishkan, being built, the tent of meeting was actually Moses' personal tent. It's where he slept, where he lived. That was his personal tent was called the tent of meeting. So through part of our Torah, through basically the first half of Exodus, it was the first three quarters of Exodus, the tent of meeting refers to Moses' personal tent. Um, and so that's what he would do. And when he had to go meet with God or whatever, or meet with the people, they would come to his tent, he'd either step outside of it or go inside of it, and God's spirit or his cloud would come down and hang out inside of Moses' tent and talk to him. And Aaron would go in there, and Josh would go in there, and they would have a conversation with God, obviously Moses face-to-face, and Aaron and Josh which more, more along the lines of listening. But uh, that's how that would work. So that was, it was called the tent of meeting. Now that, when the tabernacle was built, the Mishkan was built, the tent of meeting was it's a little bit ambiguous at times. Some had argued it's, it's Moses' tent was still the tent of meeting. It was to still use that title. And some argued that, no, the Mishkan, the actual whole tabernacle, is the tent of meeting. It goes back and forth on different people's opinions on what's what. And it truly is an opinion. Now, in reality, as time went on, we have, as Moses ages, and they, and they go their journeys about throughout, their, throughout the book of Numbers, which we discusses that topic when they're in the wilderness. Um, in that process, the tent of meeting seems to be less and less Moses' tent and more and more the tabernacle itself. So it appears that as time went on, the title tent of meeting transitioned or migrated from Moses' tent to the tabernacle's identity. And so it uses that, that those terms to drift over that direction, which implies 
that Moses' tent, no longer the intended meeting, it was his own personal tent where his wives and kids lived. Um, he would say, okay, we have to meet with God. We go to the tabernacle with Aaron and they go into the Mishkan, the actual tabernacle, and talk to God there, that that's when the tent meeting identity changed. Tabernacle then, in that case, has two names, both the Mishkan, the tabernacle, as well as tent meeting name, meaning it, because, it, because it is, it raises two names, it has two functions. Sometimes it's functioning as a tabernacle, which means where the offerings are given up, the priests are there, they're dealing with your sins, transgressions, iniquities, or, 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 or other kind of offerings. And sometimes it's acting as tent of meeting, which is where Moses shows up and they start talking to God and God explains details about what he wants them to do or uh, he calls the elders together. We have, we have to have a conversation. We have to have a meeting place. The hangout, the tent of meeting, also is tabernacle. So it appears as as time progressed, the change. So the the the, the, the name changed because a function changed, and now it has two names identifying the same thing. The other opinion that was expressed, I can't say which one's right. There's a second opinion. The second opinion was that the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was more specifically focused on the items inside of it, like the furniture items and the Holy of Holies section. But the rest, the courtyard, which was still inside, but not utilizing those utensils, not utilizing the lamp, not using the altars, the courtyard was classified as tent of meeting. And some have argued that's what they're referring to. And honestly, both opinions have merit, and so I can't tell you which one's right or wrong. But that's basically where, where it boils down to. Does it make sense? Well, so what's the dwelling place? Is that... Uh, within the, the tabernacle? Yes. The dwelling place of God would be within the Holy of Holy section, where the Ark of the Testimony hangs that's out what? at. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's not like where the labor is? Or? No. No, you, you didn't do no, it. No, you're talking about the Holy of Holies? The dwelling yes, place? that would be the dwelling place of God. Right, the dwelling place. Uh, the reason we know that's how it's classified okay. that is because ordinary people, assuming they were clean, washed, could go into the courtyard section where the altar was at or where other furniture items were located. They could go in there, but they were never allowed to go into the dwelling place of God, which the King Uzziah attempted to do just that. He went to the court like everybody else says, hey, I'm righteous, God's with me. He blessed me, I'm gonna walk right in because I'm gonna worship God in his face like all the other kings of the world do. And God struck with leprosy for doing so. So don't you dare walk into my house without me telling you to come in. And no one's allowed in without, without it has to be through the high priest, priesthood allowed in. So you don't get to do that. It doesn't matter how important of a person you are. So we know that that's God's personal house, personal dwelling place would be the, the actual, where the ark hangs out at. That's his spot. And you don't need to go into God, it's God's house without permission. It's like one of us say walking into our house and, 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 and then coming up and, and, and even if you invite them into the house from the front door and say, oh yeah, nice to meet you kind of thing. They say, great. They walk in your bedroom, lay down, take a nap on your bed. Um, it's like, wait, that's my bed. <laughs> you didn't ask. I didn't offer. Get off my bed. You get out of here. It, it, that's your personal private space. Uh, so that, that's kind of how, it, this is how I look at it, at least how, how, how I liken it to. Um, Alex, you, you have your hand up regarding this topic. Well, um, the uh, purification. I yes. mean, did, did, that There's thing a process. Did he respect even the process? Yeah, yeah. the process matters. Yep, yep. Uh, the high priest, the priest, and, and, and anybody who wanted to go to the altar had to wash their hands, wash their feet, 
get this house nice and clean for the enter in, which is what we talked about a couple weeks back it was, about Messiah washing disciples' feet. Far as because they're going to be like priests now, which you go before God, wash your feet. So he's, he's treating them symbolically. You are now a priest, not the form of a Levitical priest, but you're going to treat you like a priest because you're going to go before God in my, in my name, Messiah's name, and you will be my priest. So you're going to keep yourself clean, keep yourself holy, sanctified, set aside before you go before God in my name on behalf of all these various people that you're going to be going before God with. So it's kind of, it's a way of transferring the same symbolism from the high priesthood and the general Levite priests to the disciples themselves in their own respect, their own way, a parallel version of it. Um, uh, Yes, Anne. Yes, I was wondering about the time it took to make all this furniture and all these things. And then I was thinking, um, second second thought was, are these the same pieces of furniture and or, you know, the Holy of Holies items as well that went into David's temple? Most of them, yeah. Yes. So time-wise, do you have any idea of how long it took them to make all So the, make, the manufacturing of them appears to be roughly about six to nine months. Really? Yeah, to actually make, make short, it all. short amount of time. For- but you have thousands of people working on it. You can get a, you, I mean, we can build a massive building in a short period of time. This isn't building a building. This is the, the fabric and parts to go together. But they had to melt, they had to melt down the gold, didn't they? Yeah, it does. It takes take heat to melt down gold and hammer it flat. Now, I don't know how pure their gold was. Clearly, pure enough to where you can hammer it out in sheets and cut it in strips. You're, down, you're, you're, you're going pretty de- decent. Like, I'm guessing around the teens as far as carrot quality, you know, 18-ish, give or take, on, on, in order to do that. Maybe a little higher, hard to say. So they had decent golds to work with to make that possible. I'm guessing they got it from Egypt. I don't know where else they get it from. Um, hold on. A minute. Uh, it, Tammy had her hand up. Hold on. Go Tammy on this side. Build a barn within 24 hours. If, if Amish, Amish, she, she said the Amish can build a barn within 24 hours. That's true. And, now, and I don't know how many people they have on it. They probably only have maybe a, what, a 20 or 30 guys on it, I think, right? Give or take. They can build a barn in that time period. So that's pretty quick. Um, the Mishkan, I. Now, the, the, one of the common, I don't agree with him, but this is his opinion, beliefs was that Moses assembled the tabernacle all by himself. No other person helped him. Because he said that God could have most do this. And he, God most directed all. He interpreted to me that oh, Moses was done it by himself solely alone. I think that's garbage, but that's just my opinion. I think it shouldn't take that long to physically assemble these parts and put it together and get them working again. Uh, yes. Well, they had to learn how to work together, too. That's and, true. They had to work on a team. Yeah, they had to learn to work out what they were going to do. But also, I was thinking, you know, when they left Egypt, I mean, they took everything. Uh, yep. I mean, God had a plan for all this. And whose heart was willing, which they, those that brought it, you know, some people probably, you know, hoarded More or less, their, yeah. Yeah, and the ones that wanted to do it. But just think about everything they left with. Yeah. I mean, God's people worked. He took them out. And they took, they plundered Egypt. Mm-hmm. And brought all that to build the tabernacle. So yep. that just seems pretty incredible. It is incredible. It, they, they, they utilize the things they got. Now, I, I, obviously, they have more than just this because they had, they had enough to build a golden calf and then drink it. <laughs> they had extra gold they didn't use for this purpose. Right? So they, had, they had resources. I, I don't know how well, they much. They must have carried them all out there. They had yeah. to. So they, the gold was on their ears and their rings, nose rings and ear rings. Well, so they had bracelets. Quite a bit. Well, there was... So they there had, was only six million men, but yeah, that's not even six, including six, women six, and children. Six hundred thousand, right? So there's yeah. a lot of people there. Mm. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of people involved. Uh, so any other questions? Oh yes, Alex. 
to that point. They had been in Egypt, and there were some pretty good structures. Kings kind of did that. Yeah, then. they did. We're going right. to build a massive pyramid. And right, right. There's no questions asked. They yeah, do. They know how to build it. I'm sure Persia was doing the same thing. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, the building, the building structure shouldn't be that complicated. The, the unique with this structure is it's truly a tent. It's because it's, it's even less work as far as physical, because there's no physical foundations to build. I'll just clear a flat spot and build it together. There's nothing else to it. And it's portable. It's very useful in that capacity. It shouldn't take as long. Yes, uh, Larry. I was going to say, they said they plundered Egypt. And I yep. think we don't have real understanding of how much they plundered it. Right. They well, got well, all that gold and all those jewels and everything. Exactly. I think they left them destitute. They probably did. Uh, Egypt, uh, that's what, uh, what's the, I forget the guy's name. The guy who wrote the, oh, anyway. The, the eyewitness report at the time, his little script, his, his script, his script. That uh, the poor people, you know, wearing you know expensive stuff, it seemed ridiculous to him, right? The slaves. So yeah, so they they took a lot of it out of Egypt, a whole lot. Uh, uh, they're they're not quite. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we have a current grasp of what plunder truly means in modern day, as far as we think of like plunder. I took something from you. Oh, I plundered you. Well, yeah, but we always get it back again. We earn more, or whatever. Uh, unlike you know the old Viking days, they plundered a whole village. What was left? Dead people. <laughs> they plundered everything. They left the dead bodies, but they took everything else. So that that's the kind of vision I think of plunder. You got, there's nothing left over. Uh, yes, Anne. I noticed on the on the breastplate the twelve uh, the twelve stones. Twelve stones. Yes, but they they're very weird sounding stones. Oh, I use the Hebrew definition. So okay, Hebrew words. So this is a bit confusing. And in each of our books, each of our translations, they tend to translate the Hebrew words into what they think that stone was or is today, all right? They guessed on some of them. They didn't know for others. And so in my book I have here, it left it in its Hebrew word because we don't know the actual stone itself. We, we, we guess, but we don't actually know what it is. So because it doesn't have a picture of the stone or some, 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 uh, uh, some you know, properties listed out what the stone is to know what it's made from. So they, they, they left it, okay, we'll just leave it as a Hebrew word and leave you, your English Bible is to translate whatever word you think, whatever the translator, sorry, thinks with his own or her own research, what that stone probably was. Um, I believe they, they, we have like, for example, onyx and, 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 and you know, sapphire. And we, we, we have different kind of stones that we, that, we, that we interpret them to be. I can't say which one is. Uh, yes, Jeff. Well, it's pretty easy. Just Google it. <laughs> right. Just Google it. <laughs> Uh-huh. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, heckler somewhere, exactly. At least not throwing tomatoes. That's all that matters. <clears throat> all right, so the, any other questions around this Torah portion we, we discussed today? Okay, so there's a few things we talk about in the Torah portion itself, and then we're going to transfer to the concept, which is covered this last year, same principle, the concept of making an account. So this is an account. Uh, for, before we begin, we have as humanity, we have an impression that Moses was a trustworthy person, right? He wasn't a swindler, wasn't a, a shyster, wasn't a charlatan of the, the, the sorts, he wasn't a, a hypocrite. We, 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 we interpret that that's what he was. he was. He was a reasonably honorable person. And who does not want to be treated or, or seen as reasonably honest, right? Most of us want that. That's a reputation. Our name precedes us type of thing. We don't want to trash our name. We don't want to trash God's name, right? 
So Moses, we interpret as a relatively honorable person. Now, as an honorable person, as a trustworthy person, he felt it was necessary, and God apparently agreed, to record everything they bring in and how it is all used. Full account. How do you get the reputation of being an honest person? If you get the reputation of being an honest person, how did you get it? By being honest, right? Dealing with others, being trustworthy person, who you can, who you can, uh, who you can respect. Somebody you can put something in your care. You take care of this for me. I'll get back to it later. And you know that object or that funds or that responsibility will be honored as long as you're away, as long as physically possible. We're barring, you know thieves, robbers, and wars, uh, that it will still be there in, 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 in possession of the individual I gave it to. That's how I get that I'm transferring honor to that person, respect or, 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 or trustworthiness into them. We'll talk a little about this. And even though the person be truly honest in every way we can think of, them making sure it's a listed out account of each thing that comes in and how it is all used contributes to our belief and faith in their honor and trustworthiness, does it not? You go to say to your accountant, uh, you know, I got, you know, here's a you know, $100,000 that I, that I earned. You figure out how it all works out and who gets what and what the taxes are on it and just, you know, take care of it for me. Well, that's great. If they count it as an honest person, they'll keep it down to, okay, the nearest dollar or penny, whatever they happen to do, They'll make it as honest as they can. Okay, this is how it does. And they give you, return you all the funds that belong to you. And they distribute out to people, your employees or whatever. This is how it all works. A dishonest account says, well, here's what's belonging to you. By the way, I'm, I'm taking, tell you, but I took off you know, 10% or hid some stash it there or hid some along there. We call it embezzlement or assuming off the top. A dishonest accountant gives you an account and they hide or sneak things into the accounting process that you may not recognize and not realize what it is. And over time, years go by, they do this consistently, and you realize, huh, I, I, think, I think something's off. There's a miss. I keep earning more and more money, but I'm getting less and less. But what's going on? And you start inquiring or finding out, oh, what, what is happening? I, I'm a little bit confused. We, we call them auditing. You audit your accountant. Something is wrong. Let's go back and inquire, where did all these things go? Where is it? Where is it at? And you start investigating to find out what's going on in reality. That's how we determine honesty as far as when it comes to accounting. Well, Moses, before anybody asks, he's giving you the whole list out. Here's what all came in and here's how it was all used. Nothing wasted, nothing lost. That's good. Did anybody say, Moses, I'm giving this to you, but I want an account sheet at the end of it. No one asked for one. No one said, give me this before I, here, where's my receipt? <laughs> Nothing of the sort. But God made it important enough, Moses say, write down everything used. No exceptions. Want to all list it out, make a full account. Hence, Moses has the reputation of being an honest, trustworthy person. Does he not? He does. So what does it mean? I mean, honorable, trusted people have no responsibility to maintain that honor and trustworthy opinion. No responsibility to, to verify and double check and demonstrate their honesty. By the opposite, they do need to continuously do that. That's how they maintain their honest reputation. If I discontinue giving full account of what's happening, 
However, time lapses, I may or may not remain honest because what happens when you have ultimate power of things? Flesh and blood takes over. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how good you are, how honorable you are, you can always get corrupted, can't we? Who does not fail? Who does not have problems and struggles? We all do. How to maintain that? Give an account. Now, we're going to talk a little about that today regarding the nature of being accounting, being accounted for what you do and what you don't do. Uh, before we get to a little bit, though, with a few things we want to highlight in this Torah portion, because it's the nature of this giving an account is an important concept as far as how it's being done. Even though it's tedious, we read all this, read it all again, okay, read this same vestments of the purple and the blue and the purple and, and the red and the gold. It looks like this, and all these extra weights, you get tired of hearing all this stuff, we read it over and over again. But God thought it was important enough to say, don't forget, this is how it was done. Uh, yes, Deborah. I just want to say one comment. What I've found is that when I don't hurry and then I read it all over, I know that God keeps things obscured from our eyes. And you could have read something a whole bunch of times, and then all of a sudden, bing, some light goes on. You're thinking, oh, my goodness. So I never tire of, of reading it over it, and over. Right. Except when it comes to the numbers, you know, like there was 500, 600, <laughs> you know? I did get that. I, I rattle through that section really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I read that I part as, well as fast as my lips can go because I'm, okay, I'm tired yeah, of all the yeah. numbers. I, I totally get that. The numbers mean something. They're there for a right, reason. I, know. I get the reason for why later. they're there. But, it, but it's like, okay, I've read this so many times. The numbers don't change. Well, right. they're not supposed to change. Uh, I know what they are. But, so the, but, the, but the, um, your eyes being open to the colors and then... When he's revealing something about the tabernacle, it becomes personal because it's about you. It is. And that's a it's fundamental point. Development, yeah. it's, the tabernacle is a symbol of you. It is your purple inside you. It's your scarlet. It's our circulatory system. It's, yeah, it's your gold. It's your silver. What do you look like on the inside as well as the outside? It's you. It's me. We are the tabernacle. We're individual people. We represent those. So if God's going to dwell inside of us, inside of our hearts and minds, souls, that kind of thing, he's going to do that. What does it have to look like? Yeah, does it look like crud? Does it look like rotten material? Snakes and snails. <laughs> it does, we don't want to look at that. So what it looks like matters. Yes, Deborah. And two, um, the circulatory system I had, it was taking a, a medical terminology class and when I seen how we're set up inside, our blood, the blue and the red. and Reminds you of those things. It yeah. reminds me, it's like, wow, our eyelashes. You know, I looked up the amount of eyelashes we have because it said, you know, it was talking about hanging the curtains and the um, silver things. The hooks, yeah, yeah. Those match up to our eyelashes and body parts and the tank. And, you know, I measured the, our box is like, in the four poles was my arms and my legs. <laughs> it's, when you look it's at it like that spiritually, I was like, wow, that's. That's us. That's the ark. That's, you know, here we are on our two poles. Yeah, right. I mean, some people walk on their hands, right, Joe? That's all right. Okay. Yeah, so th th those are, those, yeah, those are, those are fundamental concepts as far as if you're supposed to be the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, what do you want to look like? Do you want to be full of <laughs> snakes and scales, uh, snails, <laughs> as your comment was? To be full of beauty, of honor, of glory. Not of your own honor, your own glory, but God sees it as glory. God sees it as beauty. That's what we're after. So the beauty God lists here, it's your beauty. 
do you have gold or not? Do you have silver in you or not? Do you have copper in you or not? Do you have light in you or not? Clay. <laughs> do you have clay in you? You have the part that it's what's inside of you. Do you have the glory of God in you or not? The ultimate goal is you'll be pleasant enough for him to dwell in. To, to your, 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 your life, your being will have the glory of God inside of it. That's, that's your ultimate goal. If it's pleasant enough, if it's set well enough, he'll say, yeah, I will dwell in you and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. That's the goal, isn't it? That's our objective. Jeff talked about that extensively last week. They said that the whole point is for God to get inside and for you to get inside the tabernacle, to dwell with God and God with you. That, that's the objective. We'll talk about a, a bit more of that today regarding that concept. So the objective, of course, is the glory of God. And of course, we, this, this book, the book ends, the, the, the tabernacle is set so well, it's set up just right in such a way and it's honorable to God that he, his presence comes, fills it with, with his cloud and everybody else has to leave because there's no space. You can't see anything of the presence of God inside the tabernacle, which is in the middle of all the people. And that's, the, that's the idea of how, the, how this section ends, this Torah portion ends. So we're going to talk a bit about that. So before I go into too, too much detail, or sorry, before I jump too far, I should say, jump too far, uh, I'll mention a few minor, minor details of this Torah portion. Uh, so we discussed about the idea of counting and in, in integrity, what that means for honesty. We also note that uh, in Jewish tradition, the, Moses blessing them. When, when Moses saw they completed their work, how it was done, how God said, I want it to look like this way, they received a blessing from Moses. The blessing from Moses doesn't spell out exactly what he said in Exodus, but traditionally, Psalms 90 is that blessing. That is the traditional blessing that, Mo, that is believed that Moses cited or wrote at that time. So I'm going to read Psalm 90 uh, regarding what the blessing would have been or theoretically would have been from Moses regarding this, the completion of what they did and accomplished in this tabernacle and what they did. So Psalm 90, it reads to us, um, <clears throat> this is it was a very famous psalm, which we all have heard different snippets of it over our years and in some cases have lived our lives, lives by it. So Psalms chapter 90, uh, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood, and they are like, like they are asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up, and in the morning it flourishes and grows. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set your, our iniquities before you, our secret sins, the sight of your countenance. Pause. Pause for a minute. Now, in the principle of what you look like inside, you look like a tabernacle. Well, look what he's pointing out. You, God, have set our iniquities before you. Do iniquities look nice? No. Uh, 
and our secret sins in, in light of your countenance. They're right in your face. Does that look good to God? No. Uh, Alex, you had your hand up regarding this? With the, uh, the holy people, because again, and, and he's made the point here uh, with the sins in the next sentence. Yeah. You can't get away from them. God never says right. to us, Hey, look, I had you all purified. No, what have you gone and done? No, right. he says, you are, you are a sinner. Right. You, you will that, have those thoughts. That's, and that's, that, that, that's, that's the issue we have. So the tabernacle cannot stay pure, can it? It can't. The body can't stay pure because it is flesh and blood. That's its, it's built to rot. Not just our physical body is, our spirits will rot too if we allow them. So it's the nature of what's inside of us that matters. So he's pointing out that God, you from the very beginning, you've been, you have been a place since for all generations. So way back, Adam and Eve, God, you, 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 we, our, you have been our dwelling place. You, we've dwelt with you and you with us from Adam and Eve onward. It's always been this way. Adam and Eve, we know sinned, right? So nobody else after them have sinned. So God has always dwelt with men. It's just how well do we maintain? that dwelling place? Do we clean it up? Or do we allow it to rot? Do we keep it? Oh, yeah, we made a mistake. Let's wash it down and clean it. try it again. Do we keep it clean? How often do you guys clean? Don't answer the question. <laughs> How often do you clean your own bodies? Relatively frequently. We take showers all the time, right? Or baths, whatever you got. How often do you clean your own house, your, your, your kitchen, your, 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 your bathroom, your, your room, hopefully? More often than some, hopefully regularly, right? Pretty regularly, right? That would you, what would happen if you chose to clean nothing? You rot. You, <laughs> if you choose to not clean anything, what happens? Well, it rots and starts being cluttered and disgusting and unpalatable. And eventually, if you don't clean your body, eventually you start having disease issues. So you, you start rotting from the outside as well as the inside. That doesn't change. So we know intuitively in the world around us that we are better off keeping ourselves clean. Uh, yes, uh, Isaac, your hand was up. We call those dungeons. Dungeons, right. <laughs> right, they'll turn into a dungeon. <laughs> place that are they're always left to rot, it turns into a dungeon. A place, and who wants to dwell in a dungeon? Other than, you know, the dragons of old. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they don't, dungeons are the place where you put, you know, criminals to rot and die. Who wants to dwell there? So we have a responsibility to, that we know that we can't maintain the tabernacle being clean, especially to always clean it, to make it look better. Yeah, it fell apart. Oops, this part wore down and broke. Let's fix it. It's a never-ending cycle. That's the responsibility of being someone who's saying, I want God to dwell with me and me with him. It's a main, continuous maintenance process. You're not going to make it perfect all, at all times. But when it fails, clean it up and do it again. Work again. It's a never-ending process. It's, it, that's how we live, we live our own lives that way. World around us. Even the animals know to bathe themselves. <laughs> and they don't, they don't have, quote, we call, we call the Spirit of God, in a quote, inside them. And they know, cats, lick yourself clean. Wash yourself, oops, wash yourself off. They know to keep themselves relatively clean because it's disgusting. They don't want to be dirty. If they know, how much more should we know? Yes, Alex. I was reading uh, a guy, uh, I'm, I forget his name. It's a made-up name. Anyway, he's, I'm trying to learn Hebrew. And one or, of the things he, yeah. he Yeah. 
One of the things he mentioned was that uh, the vanity, vanity thing yes. can also be translated as repeat. Yeah. <laughs> do over again. Do again. And that's what we do every yep. Sabbath and yep. every Every repeat. holiday cycle, redo it again. Exactly. So if you just hear vanity, vanity, oh, that, that initially in the very English or Western mm-hmm. translation, yeah. hey, don't bother. It's right. all a waste of time. Right. But if it, it, was, it was nice to hear the Hebrew translation of do it over again. Do it over again. Okay. Exactly. I can do that. And, and we can we and we go through our Passover every year, right? Which is coming up yeah. in a month or so, a little, little month, 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 little over a month. We have Passover every year. For you know, you live seventy to eighty years, but how your life, how your personal lifespan. You do Passover again and again and again and again. It's on repeat. Well, didn't we get it? I went through it a couple of times. I, I get the idea. I'm done. I know what it is. Move on. But you don't. God says, do it again, and do it again, do it again, until you can't do it again anymore because you're dead. <laughs> you don't stop until you turn to dust, Adam. <laughs> That's your job. You work until you're dust, Adam. So us Adams, do it again until we are dirt, <laughs> that we can't do it again anymore. Uh, yes, Rose. I am honored that he allows me to do it again. It is. It's a, it's a blessing. It's an absolute blessing and honor that God would allow me to come up and be before him and do it again. It's the same principle of it is an honor to have, okay, I have my own body tabernacle place, place of God, and I get it dirty for something, whatever I did or didn't do. Something made a mistake or whatever happens. It's an honor for God to say, go ahead, Daniel, clean it up again. I want it clean so yeah. Christ will come dwell with me. Right. And it, is, it, it, is, it is a sense of mercy. Go ahead. You got it dirty again. So clean it again. Do it again. Amen. Uh, yes, Larry. Um, one of the things I was l- looking at recently is that like, you know, everything has to come with salt. Yes. And the, the funny offerings. thing about salt is that if you put it on meat, it pulls the rest of the blood out. Mm-hmm. If you put it on the altar and, and so forth, the flies don't land on it. And then when it's all finished, you sweep it out. Yep. It clean, it up, clean it up. It's, it's a all good gone. cleansing agent. It is a good cleansing agent. So let's just, so I stopped, paused in the middle of it's, it's the Psalms. I apologize for that, but I just want to pause to understand what that was at. To be, it was, uh, see, we were at, oh, verse eight. Thank you. Uh, see, verse eight. Uh, I read, you said, you our day is before you. Our secret sins is out of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath, and we finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and by reason of strength they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you is, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we gain a heart of wisdom. Pause there again. So we do this again and again and again. Years go by. Remember that eventually you won't be able to do it again anymore. Cherish and value the time you get to repeat and live while you can. At some point, it will end. Value what the time to repeat. Value the time to re-cleanse, to restart, to do it over again. That's an important thing. Teach us to number our days. Number our, our value here on earth is to maintain us as best we can, and keep striving and work at it. Do you want Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion upon your servants. Satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. 
Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us and the years which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So the work of what you are striving to clean up, to maintain your, 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 your cleanliness and clean up when it makes mistakes, rewash, reclean, you're praising God, help this succeed. Help me succeed in cleaning up my tabernacle again. That's the nature of what this psalm was supposed to be. So that's the idea of what, what Moses blessed them with, the never-ending cycle. So that's, I can't say for certain Moses used that particular psalm, but that's tradition that that's the psalm he used to bless them. So we're going to move from there to the nature of accounting and make an account of what you do, your actions, your life, uh, what we have and haven't done in this life or the next, whatever it may be, and, and what that means. So this is a parable where, I mean, this is book of Luke, chapter 16. So Luke 16, uh, Messiah is in the middle of, of, of various series of parallels being, oh, sorry, parallels, parables being recorded here, and he has an audience. So his audience has both his disciples as well as other people in the, in the region in, in, within earshot. I don't know if it's in a particular room or not. Within earshot, listening to the parables he's, he's reciting. Now, these parables, as I mentioned, just mentioned it dozens of times, they have a story and they have a punchline. You can't miss the punchline. Regardless if he tells a story, it's a punchline that matters. This particular parable has multiple punchlines in it. Luke 16 this is verse 1 through 17. Uh, this, this has multiple punchlines in this. Now, the punchlines are repeated. It's the same punchline. He just repeats it many different ways as far as how to get the point across what he's saying. So this is Luke 16. This is the parable of the unjust servant. And we just went through the Torah portion where Moses, being the just servant, makes a full account of everything he did. All the money that came in, how it was used, where it was used, who used what, and where it all ended up. That's making a just servant. It wasn't like, hey, we got 100 talents of silver, and we used 50 of them for doing this. Where is the other 50? Oh, somewhere. <laughs> that would be the unjust servant. You're just skimming off the top. All the money came in, and half of it was used for purpose. We call those um, charities today, because <laughs> they do that quite frequently. <laughs> It's like, oh, sure, uh, collect, collect your money in, and oh, let's, let's, let's uh, skim like 50% off the top. And yeah, and, and half it actually goes, if, if you're lucky, half goes to what the Acts charity is for. The half is used for called administrative costs, right? Those, that, that uh, yeah, yeah, miscellaneous expenses for these nonprofits while everybody walks home with money. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, uh, so be aware of, of how charities work. That's me. I wouldn't say that I'm not claiming that all charities are unjust, but certain charities have a reputation of being unjust. Not all. I'm not trying to condemn charities. I, I, I donate to charities too. It's just that uh, be, be aware of who you're donating to, how, how reasonable is it, and what expectations are you, are you expecting when you donate your money. Anyway, so this is Luke 16, starting in verse 1. And he, from the Messiah, also to his, to his disciples. Now, this is a message specifically to his disciples, not to all the audience necessarily. So he's message to his disciples narrowly. Okay, I'm, I, of my audience, 
I'm going to talk to my disciples first, right, this particular topic. So you guys listen to this carefully. This is, quote, inner circle, or soon to be priests, so to speak, in, 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 his, in his service. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what I will do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred measures of oil. So he quickly said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. He said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write down 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous wealth, that when you fail, when they fail, it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful faithful also in what is much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in what is much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will commit to you the trust of what is true? And if you have not not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? For no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these sayings, and they derided him. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, the law and the prophets were preached until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing to get into it. Yet it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. Pause there. So this is his his parable regarding the making account, and then the, the rebuke, the rebuttal, that was brought against the Pharisees when they said, wait a minute, you know, you're, 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 you're talking out of turn, so to speak. He said, no, I'm not talking out of turn. This is true. We're going to break this parable down a little bit, not too deeply, because again, if you dig too deep in a parable, you get yourself lost. And that's not, the goal isn't to get lost in a parable. So the nature of stewardship. 
So stewardship's job is here is your task. Your job is to take care of my possessions, whether it's your house, your wealth, your family, whatever. You were you're, you're assigned a job. You were hired to do a job. Now, in this case, the stewardship says you're wasting goods, which means he's skimming off the top or using some for himself. This is the principle of, as I mentioned before, here's 100 talents, Moses, and 50 were used for tabernacle, and we won't discuss the 50. But that would be the stewardship taken off part of his master's money, in this case, the money of the wealth. Moses didn't do that, of course, but that's the example I had cited earlier. So in this case, the stewardship, the steward is, is stealing or is taking for his own personal use money from the master. And the master finds out about it. Says, oh, okay, no, no, no. I, I, an audit has happened. I heard a report. I've done an audit. Uh, now I realize you have been stealing from me. Uh, you are now fired. Now, here's a scenario that happens. The steward, not being a foolish person, not being some, some dumb, gullible individual, realizes, wait a minute. If I lose my job as a steward, who's going to hire me? Now, mind you, his reputation's before him. How much honor and respect does he have? Very, very, very little. <laughs> very, very, very little. So if I'm another master, let's say I live down the street or across the way, and if I don't, oh, Jim Schmooley's servant, he just got fired for, for, for embezzling. Oh, I'll hire him. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who's going to hire him? <laughs> Forget that. I'm not going to hire this guy. I, I, I leave him on the street. He'll steal from me too. So no one's going to hire somebody. So yeah, yeah, he's got it. His steward has He's an embezzler. We're not going to hire him. That's ridiculous. Matter of fact, he's all, everybody's now been warned. Here's the embezzler, right? He's not going to find a job again. So how is he going to provide for himself? His family, uh, his, his bills, expenses. He's got probably wife and kids, I'm, I'm assuming. How's he going to pay for these expenses? Well, he has a reputation of, of a dishonest person. Dishonest person goes before him. His reputation is now set. It's not like Moses' reputation. This is a dishonest reputation. This is a, a disaster individual. So in this scenario, we have the steward realizes, okay, crud. Uh, I can't go as a laborer saying, okay, I can't run your money, other people's masters. Can I dig your ditch? Maybe the guy is old. I don't know. He can't, he can't go physical labor. He can't be just a hired laborer that you know, picks grapes or whatever. He's probably not trustworthy for that either. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you start eating the grapes instead of picking them. Whatever he's going to do, uh, he won't even do that. He can't do those basic tasks. So he's no, no, he can't go dig ditches and he can't, he's too ashamed to be a beggar on the street. And that is obviously, as mentioned before, shame or shame is one of the most strongest emotions in humans. The idea of being embarrassed, we hate that. We'll do a lot of things to avoid embarrassment. Lie, cheat, steal, all to avoid embarrassment. The shame is a very strong, intense emotion inside of humanity. So he doesn't want to be ashamed. So the idea of begging on the street is a shame. Or even going to other people whose friends or, or other fellow embezzlers and ask them for begging for money. Uh, he doesn't want to do that either. So he has this problem. Okay, I have this scenario. I'm going to lose my job. My reputation is shot. I have no way of making funds or coming, carrying my bills and expenses, and I can't beg. What do I do? So being a wise, shrewd individual, not a righteous individual, but a shrewd one, says, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll go to the people who owe money to my master and forgive part of their debts. Well, this is written down on the bill and signed. It's as if it's been paid. 
that's how unlike modern day we have you know banks that take key tracks and they have mortgage and they and they've got uh, uh, lenders they have tons of people whose only job is to verify the money's been paid it's been transferred they didn't do that at that time that was written down on a piece of paper if you lost the paper both parties had a piece of paper if you lost the paper the debt is zero that's how it worked it wasn't but you owe me money i just can't prove it but you owe me money yeah have a nice day as I walk away, <laughs> you don't have the paper that says it. Let's imagine, for example, the bank lost your mortgage note. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> you owe nothing because the bank has zero record of it. We can't prove anything anymore. Okay. Here's a, this is the type of scenario how, how debts were done. They don't have electronic da- banking anymore. Uh, yes. Right. But even with electronic banking... <laughs> Back during the last financial crisis in what 2008-ish, when yeah, all yeah. those mortgage kinds of imploded, wait, wait, the sub mortgage crisis, mm-hmm. those mortgages had been sold and resold so many times that there were many people they didn't even know who they owed their mortgage to anymore. That's right. So in a sense, they there was no paper anymore of who they owed their mortgage to. It was like, you know, they might have gone through three, four, five different mortgage lenders. Mm-hmm. Like, well, who do I owe the money to? I don't know. Right. So they didn't have to pay anybody. Right. No, no, nobody's owed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, 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 a strange scenario. When, when, when the paperwork is lost, it's lost. You can't prove how it worked. Now, I'm not saying some forensic computer scientist couldn't figure it out. I'm sure these guys are really smart. Yeah. They, they went back and reconstruct how the process works. I get that there, there are scenarios which they work very hard at making sure. Because one thing our government does not tolerate is, 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 is uh, other people embezzling. Uh, they can do it, but not others. They don't like that. So, so they don't tolerate that, that kind of stealing process. Anyway, so, uh, so the steward realizes I have to make a scenario so when I lose my job, I don't lose my place in life. How do I do that? I have to make a, ingratiate myself to others who can take care of me and provide for me, even though I have a reputation of being an embezzler. How do you do that? Make someone extremely grateful to you. That's how you do it. A president. Did <laughs> oh, you go to politics already? <laughs> so you make them grateful to you. How do you make them grateful to you? Have them feel like they owe you something. They're indebted to you. Hey, you know what? This guy saved me a boatload of money. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll hire him. I'll take care of him. For a while, whatever. He saved me a whole lot of, he saved my, my livelihood. He may be extremely wealthy. I'll gain out of this. So that's how he did it. So Stuart did that. And the master realizes that was brilliant, Stuart. That you're still fired, but that was brilliant. <laughs> you, you made a scenario such that your firing will have no effect, no effect, no effect on you. That you'll be wealthy and taken care of the rest of your life. That was brilliant. That was the master's realization, putting out the steward. That was a smart move on your part. Now, I'm not saying it was righteous moves. That's not saying righteousness. It was, it was smart. Uh, yes, uh, Larry. First of all, when he asks them how much he owed, that's a red flag right there. He's supposed to be the steward. He's supposed to know what they owe. Yeah. So I want to wait till you're finished, and I've got an alternate uh, explanation. Oh, of fair that. enough, fair enough. So the master realizes you're, you, you were shrewd, stu- shrewd steward as far as how you took care of yourself. Because it points out that uh, in the first aid, he committed the unjust to it because he had deceit, he dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd durations than the sons of light. Now, contrast 
what would a righteous steward have done? Repented. Would he have gone through trying to figure, okay, how do I manipulate the situation to save my skin? No, he said, I'm sorry, master. Here's what I stole, whatever I took, whatever I could re- how could I repay you? Would a son of light even bother this thing to begin with? Well, theoretically, no. So the son of light is absolutely, okay, what is true, what is just, what is fair? That would be a son of light, a son of what is right, what is righteous, what is true, what is justified. And they would walk the line or be clean and straight in what they were trying to do. That would be a son of light. Now, the steward wasn't. The son of lights are not shrewd. They're not manipulative. They're not in for self-gain, self-profiteering, self-preservation. They're in it for what is right versus what is wrong. Son of light are not shrewd individuals, are they? No, they wouldn't be. Not that they aren't smart individuals, just not shrewd individuals. The difference. Now, a shrewd person may be smart. They will be smart. They try to focus what is the best choice in this scenario. So he's pointing out that this, 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 this one who, is, who understands the world around them, manipulative of the world around them, and best of the world, they are good at what they do. That's besides the point. They're good at what they do. They're, they're talented. They're shrewd at it. Sons of light are not shrewd at it. They are not good at manipulating the world around them. They're not that talented at it. So he points out to verse 9, which, is, which first sound, sounds confusing, but you have to look at it carefully. And I say to you, make friends, by, he's still referring to his disciples, as you make friends for yourselves by unrighteous wealth, that when you or it fails, they may receive you in everlasting habitations. That seems a strange instruction. If I'm a disciple, I want to be a son of light. I want to be somebody who's good, righteous, and, and justified. Make friends with unrighteous wealth? Are you, are you telling me to be worldly and shrewdly? I, I, should be more shrewd? I don't, I, don't, I don't quite understand. Well, he explains it more carefully as far as how, what he means by that. And it's explained in, in verse you know, 15, 16, and 17. Continuing on, though, to, 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 with this, with this, what he's trying to explain to them. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in least is unjust in much. Pause there. So if I'm a son of light, I want to be faithful in everything, right? That's my goal. Is I know my tabernacle will not remain clean forever. But when it fails or I have issues, I'll try to clean it up. I'll try to keep it clean as best I can. And I'm going to wash it again. If something goes wrong, I'll try to fix it and repair and do it again. I'm cool with that. I'll do that as often as I possibly can as long as I live. That product doesn't bother me. I can happily do it, son of light. That, that doesn't, shouldn't bother any of us. That's our goal, right? That's the easy part for our objective. That, that is how we would do it. So faithful in who I'm trustworthy, son of light, you're trustworthy in what is little, the little things. You'll be obviously trustworthy in what is great or a big thing. That's an important detail. If I was saying, hey, you know, I got some, some schmutz on, this, uh, on, the, on the altar today. Let's wash it off. As opposed to, oh no, my altar wheel, or wheel, the leg broke and fell off. And now it's on the ground sideways. Well, that's a bigger problem. Let's go fix it. If I was worried about the schmutz on the side before, I will definitely be careful about trying to make it look as best I can, clean up and repair it when it breaks. So when I make a, when I make, make a fool of myself. Uh, yes, Pamela, your hand is up. I apologize. Unmute yourself, Pamela, so we can hear you. 
think uh, my Bible, is, which is probably a different version, it says on verse 9, I tell you to make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, you may receive, they may receive you into the eternal habitation. Correct. What? Hell? <laughs> so, so we're going to discuss what he means by that, eternal heaven. habitations. So uh, that's explained a little bit more thoroughly uh, in, in, in by, first by Peter, but it will explain a bit in verse, uh, in verse 12. So that it, it, the, the, what, how they receive you. So we're, we're going to try to unpack this parable a little bit over the next few minutes, discuss what he's trying to argue or point out them with inside the story. So it's not eternal damnation or everlasting hell. (laughs) It's a different discussion of what's being said here. So what is he trying to tell them? So if you want to be faithful a little bit, faithful a lot of things. If you're unjust a little bit, you're unjust a lot of things. So if if, if small things don't bother you, you don't have to worry about the big things either. That was the idea verse verse 10. We'll go back to verse 9 in a minute, Pamela, as far as how we we go through this. Uh, And and it continues on. It says... uh, Therefore, you, you, if you have not been, sorry, verse 11, if you have been, not been faithful in the unrighteous, in, in, if, sorry, therefore, if you have not been faithful or trustworthy in the unrighteous wealth, who will commit to, to your trust what is true, or true, true wealth? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? And then it goes, no master can serve two masters. Yeah, and, and you cannot serve both God and, and wealth. So, what is he trying to argue? What's he trying to point out to them? So those who are of this world are wise in their own way. They're good, they're shrewd, they're talented, what they do. They, don't, they know how to manipulate the situation to make them as most successful as possible, regardless of what adversity comes. Very, very, there are many people who are good at that. Granted, many of them are in power, too, at times. As far as, no matter what happens, they seem to be you know, unable to get, you know, have bad things happen or as far as corrections going back to them on for various reasons. But that's, that, that, that's being shrewd in this world, so to speak. Well, those who are not shrewd in this world aren't very good at that. And unfortunately, that's, it's to the detriment in some ways. So he's pointing out that in verse 12, which, is, which, will, which will help explain verse 9, uh, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? What is your own? What belongs to you? Well, you think nothing. Let's go to First Peter. Now, and he says, "What is yours?" First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. I get First Peter. It's a small book. Hold on a minute. That is. He gives an example of what what this what belongs to you. What is set aside for you specifically? This is yours. I have mine, you got yours, this is ours, right? Each, each person gets their own. So 1 Peter 1, there's only a few verses here, very simple, right? First of all, this is verse uh, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled that does not fit away reserved in heaven for you. That's yours. It's reserved for you. It's imperishable, doesn't, doesn't fade away, doesn't 
decompose, doesn't fall apart, doesn't, nothing happens to it. It's permanently there for you. That is yours. Okay? Now I know what your own is. You don't get to own the body you're in. You don't get to own the house you live in today. You don't own the wealth of the bank or the clothing you own. It's on your back. No, that's actually yours. How you know it's not yours, you can't take it with you. <laughs> when you know it's not yours, you can't take it with you when you die. It's what's left behind is still left behind, right? You, you could, they can bury you in a car, but unfortunately, you still don't get to take the car with you. It's still, it doesn't go with you. So that stuff isn't yours. What is yours? What is reserved for you in heaven that does not perish or undefiled, does not fade away? That is specifically yours. I have mine. You have yours. She has hers. She has hers. He has his. It's in heaven set aside specifically. Mine doesn't get to go to somebody else. They say, well, I didn't need it. Therefore, I'll give it to Jim Schmooley. No, no. <laughs> it's mine. He can get his own, but I get mine. All right? It's mine. That is mine. Now, that's what is my own. It's, 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 it's life. It's everlasting life. That, 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 that place in heaven, your spot in heaven, is yours. Well, yeah, it, 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 says, it says to an, it says, uh, sorry, uh, 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 Larry's asking a question. This is, we'll reread this one more time. Bless, this is verse three through, through four. Blessed be the God of Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ the dead. That's live, the living hope. Hope in what? Hope in living. It's, it's alive. It's active. Right. Now, to, what is the hope in? It's the resurrection of the dead to something. The hope is to an inheritance. So a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable. The inheritance won't fall apart. Undefiled, it can't get dirty. And does not fade away. It doesn't get old with time and, and, and be decomposed. It's reserved in heaven for you. That living hope is in that what is reserved for you in heaven. We've talked about this in the past in, in private conversations too, that clearly in, in, in hell, you serve hell, there's no everlasting life in hell. It doesn't because everlasting life is in heaven. Heaven, hell is when you die. It's not, it doesn't, you can't live forever in hell, in heaven, or in hell, I mean. You live forever in heaven, but not in hell. So the hope is that, that living hope in that, in, that, in that inheritance. What is the inheritance? It's a place for me in heaven that's reserved for just me. We hope, we hope to collect on that. So that's, that's, that, that, that's what we're looking for. So now go back to verse 12 of, of, of Luke. If you have not been faithful in, in, what, in another man's, who will give you what is your own? So if you've not been faithful in another man's inherited hope of life, who's going to give you yours? Because God won't. God won't give it to you. If you aren't faithful in someone else's, why should you be faithful in yours? Let's reword this, let's reword this multiple ways. If you don't give mercy to someone else, why would God give you any? If you don't give forgiveness to someone else, why would God give you any? If you don't show compassion to someone else, why would God show you any? See how that works? That life, that hope, has requirements. So we're going to relook at this parable one more time, a different, different manner of looking at it, all right? 
the way which the Pharisees saw and got slapped in the face for it, because they knew what he was talking about. It's not about money. It's about actions. Let's go back to verse 1 of Luke 16. That's where we we replace a few words here to explain what Messiah is pointing out at. Because he points out his punchline was 15, 16, and 17, the verses. As far as Pharisees, there's a problem here. <clears throat> there was a certain rich man, verse 1, a certain rich man who had a steward, and he brought him that the man was wasting his, not goods, his blessing. He called him and said, what are you, here's a hear about you. Give an account of your stewardship, for you could no longer be steward of, my, of what I own. So he said to himself, what shall I do? My master taking the stewardship away from me, the, 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 the power, the authority to control the blessings from God away from me. Now mind you, I am saying the word blessings. Who's responsible for blessing the people with what God expects of them? Their knowledge, their wisdom, their forgiveness, their life. The leadership is. So leadership, a.k.a. steward, you have a job to do and you have been skimming off the top. You've been blessing anybody. You've been helping anyone. There's a problem. You're not going to be stupid anymore. Fired. Who did God fire? The Pharisees, Sadducees. They're fired. Your responsibility is taken out from you. Because you didn't do what your job was. Now they, he has, I resolved to, what, what to do. Sorry, I resolved what to do. That when I put out the stewardship, they, they may receive me in their houses. So how do I, as a corrupt individual, who is in charge of God's house, who has refused to do what God told me to do, refused to give forgiveness, refused to give mercy, refused to give true justification, righteousness, blessings from God, what do I do? Well, I'll bless those who are my friends. I'll help those who are going to bless me afterward. Not people that say who deserve it, but those who I will gain from it, which is what the Pharisees were doing. Were they not blessing themselves? Quite thoroughly. Sadducees, yes, quite thoroughly. Bless themselves very well. They bless the common man. The common, we consider him, sinner. No. No forgiveness given there. No mercy given there. Nothing of the sort. He go to his master's friends, debtors, and said to me, first, how much do, I do, do you owe my master? Of course, he, he, he forgives part of his debt. See, he's willing to give forgiveness to those who, 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 who truly owe, who are wealthy enough to owe, but not give forgiveness to those who can't, can't afford anything. He goes through and says, he goes to another, how much do you owe? Of course, he goes through the, 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 the wheat, the oil, and such. The master commends the unjust servant, reads dealt shrewdly, the unjust leadership, Judge shrewdly, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in the generation and their leadership than the sons of light. I say to you, make yourselves friends with unjust leadership, that methodology, that you may, when it fails or when you fail, they may receive you in everlasting habitations. So what does that mean then? Well, what was the method the steward used to gain favor? He gave forgiveness, didn't he? He forgave debt to gain favor. Who do we owe debts to? Not money debts, life debts, 
we sin, we sin against God or against man. Right. That, that, the, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's who we sin against. So where do we gain favor? By gaining that sin forgiven. But the more we got forgiven, the more blessed you are. We've heard that statement before. So this process is what he's referring to, not the unjust wealth. It's the methodology that he's using. Forgive it. Forgive it. That's the method. And you had a comment. So the steward, um, he cut the he cut the um, the master's money uh, owed in yes. half. Yep. So I mean, it's still gonna look on the books like you know something missing. Correct. That's exactly what it looked like. Hence, the master can see that it's missing. There's, day, there's, there's pieces missing. Here's the steward did. But whose forgiveness are we using when we forgive someone? It's God's. Is it not God's forgiveness we're using? It's his wealth. Whose mercy are we using when we give someone mercy? It's God's. It's God. He is the ownership of forgiveness. He has the ownership of mercy. He has the ownership of all righteousness. So when we give that to somebody else, we take God, we're taking God's mercy, taking God's love, taking God's righteousness, and give it to somebody else. We're using his wealth, aren't we? It's that method. He's the master. His wealth is the forgiveness and blessings of righteousness and, and mercy. That's what the steward is stealing or taking from God and distributing it about to his friends for personal gain. And besides pointing out disciples, use the same method. Take God's mercy and distribute it out. (laughs) Take his forgiveness and distribute it out. And then what will you gain? What is yours? Right. Now the Pharisees were upset. They knew what he was saying because they were being called out. And in verse 15, it points out, when they, they, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So the steward had an objective. He would forgive those who he would gain favor from. That was his goal. I forgive this person. I get favor from that person. I am now well set because that person will then take me in as, as, as a residence. That was a personal gain. And he's pointing out, Pharisees, that's what you're doing. You personally do favors for one another and for wealthy individuals to, ha- to have gain. But not everybody else who can't give you that gain. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to the Son of God. And that is. For personal wealth, I was a daughter a few weeks back, philanthrocapitalism, right? The idea, I'm giving you something, but I'm actually going to get something out of it. More out of it than I'm giving. Yeah, I'm getting more money, that is, out of it than what I'm giving to you. It's, it's, it's a rotten process. Uh, and points out the law of the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing it. So everyone, not just your friends, Stuart, Pharisees, but everybody is trying to get into it. That includes the poor sinner there on the ground who you walked on top of. That one too is trying to get in also. They get, deserve the same process of taking God's wealth and give to them too, to serve them as well. And he's pointed out, and he concludes, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. 
So you're giving forgiveness to these individuals who gave you personal gain, which is, you know, sounds great for you. Your personal wealth and your personal body is taken care of. But that doesn't change how the law is written. Meaning that there will be an account. The law is still there. Your actions are still recorded. So who you didn't give mercy to is also recorded. Who you didn't give forgiveness to is also recorded. Who you didn't give love to is also recorded. Not just those you did. You used. So the idea is he's telling the disciples, the process of taking someone else's wealth, in this case the wealth of God is life, it's mercy, it's justice, righteousness, it's, it's, it's forgiveness. Those wealth tools give them out. If you're trustworthy in this process of giving them out, then you get to receive what is actually yours, which is your place reserved in heaven for you. Does that make sense? So it's giving an account of what you're doing with God's wealth. Moses had to give one, and guess what? So do all of us. Revelation 20 tells it quite plainly. <laughs> there is an account. You got to write, okay, what, who did you give? Who did you clothe? In Messiah's words, uh, uh, clo- uh, I forgot his. Yeah, yeah, when I clothe you, see you naked, see you in prison, all those things that if it's what you did to one, you did it for me too, as well. All those individual things, that's to point out you didn't do them. Therefore, this is not going to go well for you. You don't receive what you didn't give. Does that make sense? So giving an account means how are you handling the wealth God's gave to you? How, much, how are you handling mercy God gave to each, each of us? How do I handle the mercy I received? Do I just hold on to it? Do I give it to only my friends? Or do I give it to everyone else too? What the forgiveness God gave to me? Do I just hold on to it? Give it to just my friends? Or do I give it to everybody else too? What the love God gave to me? Just hold on to it, give it just my friends? Or give it else too? It's, it's that they, the act of giving it away is the tool Seward used to preserve his life. It's the same thing. Do the same thing. Use the same tool that he used to preserve his life. You use it to preserve yours. The everlasting life. Yes, Rose. I think we just have to go right back to Genesis when uh, God said to Christ, let us make man in our image. So if we're made in the image of God, should we not also do as God does? Exactly. We may look like him, but shouldn't we not act, act like, like him? him? Yep. And it comes to question about his Torah portion. I'm, I'm, little, I'm not doing uh, somebody's hands up. Who is it? Uh, Pamela. Pamela, your hands up. Go ahead and un, un, uh, unmute yourself, Pamela, so we can hear what your comments were. I'm still not convinced that it, when it says in verse 9, so that when it fails, your money, they may receive you into the eternal habitation. Mm-hmm. I think that's just kind of unclear, I, eternal I, yeah. habitation. So I, that, 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 that's a fair question. The everlasting habitation, or eternal habitations, uh, that, that when it fails, it will receive you into it. So the nature of who's doing the receiving and what's this everlasting habitations eventually the wealth does fail. Eventually, my, 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 my point is, 
that the mercy does end. How does it end? You die. When, you de- when you're dead, you can't go back and fix anything. You can't go back and forgive. You can't go back in the past yeah. and say, okay, you said for God, oh, hold it, God, on line 47, uh, violation 15. Let me go fix that. I'll be right back at you. Let's go back in time. You know, fix the light. Okay, get it erased. Good. Now let's move forward. Next line. You don't get to go back and do that. So the nature of, 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 of the everlasting temptation is what, 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 you're, what you're getting. You can't go back and fix it. So it will, the blessings of God, will end for each man, woman, and child who lives. So it will end. Eventually, you, pa- you perish. You die. Your body stops. And so when it's done, your past is already written. It's written out. It is what it is. Now, obviously, we depend upon Messiah to correct the things we can't correct. You can't go back and fix your past. You can't go back and undo them. But you depend on him to take care of those things you cannot do as long as you want to clean up, your, clean up your, your act, clean up your mess. So he knows eventually it will end. This, this, the, this ability to give money in this instance is the citation he's giving. The ability to, 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 to gain favor in the eyes of others will eventually end for you. The, the ability, if I, if the, my argument is if you give, if you, you eventually the ability to give mercy to others and forgiveness to others will end for you because you'll be dead. Your life will end. And the mercies won't apply to you anymore because it's finished. Yeah, your tent's taken down. Uh, that, that's, that's my point. Now, I'm not saying this is the, the only way of interpreting these verses. So this is what, it seems to make sense because that's what verse 15, 16, and 17 imply. Uh, Larry. Well, I'm, I'm a little confused at this point because it says there, he says, make friends of yourself with unrighteous mammon. Mm-hmm. And stuff that comes from God's not unrighteous. It's not with unrighteous, it's by the unrighteous mammon. The method is by it. The method of the unrighteous mammon. Not, not gaining personal wealth by it, but the method of the unrighteous mammon. The example I've given to you, make yourself friends. Not by personal gain, but the, well, actually it is personal gain. In a matter of speaking, if you're gaining life. But that's the nature. It's the methodology, the by, the, 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 the technique of the unrighteous mammon. Well, the money that we have the dollars and cents that we have, that's unrighteous mammon. Even if we make an honest living, in some that's ways, it is unrighteous mammon. Because it's not the eternal mammon, so to speak, that's of Hashem too. that you were talking yeah. about earlier with the mercy, love, compassion. That's the eternal mm-hmm. wealth. That's the eternal money. This money we have here, even though we earn it through honest means, whether we're a ditch digger or an attorney or you know, whatever we do, that's still unrighteous mammon. And so what the steward had done, he used unrighteous wealth to buy these people off so that when he got fired, he at least would have a place to stay and not totally starve. Mm-hmm. So when we go to the prisons or when we um, feed the poor, when we donate money to the people in Ukraine or whatever, we are using unrighteous wealth in a sense to do that when we're donating that money to the American Red Cross or whatever we're doing. That's unrighteous wealth that we're donating toward that. But by that, God sees that and it, puts that on our account in eternity. In eternity, right. That's a fair way of looking at it. That's, that's, that's a fair way. Because everything God gives to you in the form of wages or whatever, that is a gift from God. Yeah, you worked for it, but reality is the employer could say, yeah, you're fired. You got nothing. You, you, you walk away. Or, or there are laws involved. Or, or something happens. So everything, everything what, you have yeah. is from God. And then once I pass away, even if, let's say I pass away tomorrow, that next paycheck that comes in, mm-hmm. I'm gone. Who's going yeah. to get that, right? Right. It's not going to be me. Yeah, you, you, you earned it, but you don't get to keep it, type of thing. So those, those blessed, that's actually a fair way of looking at it, too. Unrighteous, all wealth would classify into that category. 
God gave it to you. Now what are you going to do with it? He's put, it's put in your, in, your, in your possession. What did Abraham do with it? What, do, what did Isaac do with it? What did Jacob do with it? What do you do with the wealth you have? That's a, that's a good way of putting it as well. All, all wealth falls in that category. Um, any of the comments or questions around this tour this, this portion of our comment, conversation today? I know, it's a, I know it's a confusing passage in verse 9. I know it's confusing. I looked at myself and said, say what? I had to read it a couple times. I said, what? What? That makes no sense. Are you telling them to be, you know, unruthless, you know, you know money grubbers? <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. That would make no sense because that's inconsistent with all of the verse in the whole passage. Okay, so obviously you can't interpret he's telling them to be unrighteous people. That would be illogical because all of the passages and the verse following it and leading up to it is saying the opposite. So we had something off here, but then I realized it's, it's the, he used the word by, or which means we're through the methodology of this being, through, what I, through the example I'm giving you. Uh, yes. Uh, but I thought it meant um, that make, you know, where you make friends and you do this with the world, that when you're in tribulation, that they come and feed you and help you. Like for us, like when, remember, the, we, we can't buy or sell. Right, right, the right. worldly people that have been getting that money and income, like I was thinking my neighbor, for example, none of my neighbors are Christians, but then I'm nice. I mean, we're, it's, they're not so difficult. Right. But I thought, you know, uh, those are the kind of people that if I can't go to the store or they'll feed me and they'll help me. That's what I thought too by giving out, you know, my services and help being there for them that in my time of need, that's what I thought. That. Well, that's, that, that's, a, that, that's, that's not wrong either. That's not, that's not a wrong philosophy. Hey, if I need help and the individuals who are around who can help me, if I have a positive, mercy-filled, generosity, forgiveness-filled reputation amongst them, I have an honest reputation like Moses had, they would really recognize the honest reputation of God. I treat everyone equally and right, fairly yeah. and justly. Do more than you, yeah. Right. Do more. So even an unrighteous person can recognize that. Right, right, yeah. They do. And that's still a blessing to you as well. Oh, it Nothing is. Nothing wrong with those processes. Been. It has to be a blessing to you. Yeah. The, the, the idea of forgiving and, and, and being merciful mm, and yeah. giving loving, it applies to every man, woman, and child. Right, exactly. Regardless of the scenario. We want to be forgiven what we've been forgiven. Exactly. Especially those who know. Right. We know where the neighbor may not be reading the Bible or right. someone that, you know, is behaving, they don't. They might not know what we know. But they recognize so your behavior. You know, we're we're uh, accountable for what we do know. Because Moses's behavior, he was was went before him. His reputation went before him. Regardless of what people thought of him, they knew. Wait a minute, Moses is a scary individual. Not he's he wasn't scary himself, but his power was scary. So it matters. Your reputation does matter. Uh, Jeff, you have your hand up. Uh, Pamela, one thing that might be helpful in this is that. Um, when it's talking about unrighteous mammon, it's something that is a huge problem here today when they talk about uh, crooked capitalism. And people are, have, this, have this view that, you know, the, that money is something that is just evil and folk that are working toward um, business are just in the sense of stepping over people. And that, in a sense, is unrighteous mammon because it is a building wealth without the idea that there are, uh, it should be a transaction where people are coming out good on both sides. Because one of the, the key characteristics of um, Adam Smith's first book before he wrote The Wealth of Nations was that you have to not only just have a comparative advantage between two nations or two people trading, is that you have to have a win-win situation. 
for the long term. Because if you just win on your transactions, good luck getting that next transaction with the same person again. You're just going to burn bridge after bridge after bridge after bridge after bridge. That is what we're facing here today. And that is what people are so incensed about is because we have lost the business ethic that you must be um, basically do business with others the way you would want them to do business with you. I think we've heard that that principle before. It's called the golden rule. Well, in this sense here, you know, when you are dealing with debts, in this case, the 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 context of forgiveness. Well, what does the unrighteous world do with debts? We call that revenge. Revenge, yeah. You get even and you, you, you stick it to them. Well, what is the way the kingdom of heaven deals with debts? Forgive. You cancel them. You cancel them. You cancel them. And it, you can gain greatly through if there is a big debt, that's if you win the person back into the kingdom. So in the sense of teaching the world how to truly deal with debts between people, you will, in a sense, not only just have your own way into the kingdom to get closer to God, but you will also bring other people along with you. So that, in a sense, is where you are using the unrighteous mammon, so to speak. You have debts. Everybody's got debts. Everybody's got debts. Everybody's got something against you. Well, what do you do with that? You stick it to the other person? You step over them? Or... Do you work to rebuild a relationship that is for the long term? Because just in business, if you just go through your life burning bridges, you're going to run out of bridges after a while. Well, just so in life, if you go through your life building bridges, you'll have lots Lots of of options when you need a bridge. Yes, Bill. For 50-year... Oh, the, 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 ju- the Jubilee cycle? You asked about forgiveness of debts and for, uh, the, every seven years and every 49 years as far as a forgiveness cycle? It's ju- the, jubilee or sh- the Jubilee and then there's the Shemitah cycle. The Shemitah is seven years. Jubilee is the seven of seven, seven, seven years. Yes. The principle of forgiving is placed in there very heavily. That possible. It's supposed to be a, a never-ending cyclical thing of forgiving, of giving freedom of forgiving. It's, a, it's pre-written into our Torah as our way of life to always do. It's never, it doesn't stop. You don't get to end the process. It continues on forever. So it's, our Torah tells us to do that. Messiah is just reiterating in, in this example of a methodology doing it not every seven years, but all the time. Any questions or comments on this Torah portion and our conversation for today? All right, we'll close the prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you. For our Shabbat day of rest, our day of worship and praise and study of your way of life, Father, we ask that you will grant us peace and wisdom to make good decisions for us and to our families and our loved ones, Father, that our future be a bright, positive one in your kingdom. Father, we ask you will grant us good wisdom to make good decisions for us and that we will hear your word and your direction of life that we may live. We ask you will grant us peace, Father, we praise you and ask your blessing in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. 
If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.